ahead and have a seat with me. I don't have one specific verse we're going to be turning to or one specific passage we're going to be turning to today as we have a whole lot. Uh, being that this is the first Sunday of the month and we are looking on these first Sundays at the attributes of God, we are going to kind of round out our treatment of these attributes we call the, the omnis of God, that he is omniscient means that he knows everything, that he is omnipresent means that he is everywhere, and that he is omnipotent, which we will look at today, means that he, uh, he has all power. I felt like this attribute was incredibly fitting for today, being Palm Sunday, the Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, received by the people in, in Jerusalem there with a king's, a conquering king's welcome. A conquering king would not have ridden on the colt of a donkey. Uh, that alone should give us a clue that what God intended was maybe a little different than what the people intended. But they cried out, as we sang today, Hosanna. Now, a month ago when we did this, I said it would probably be your only chance to be really interactive because I just don't do that very often. But, and I said you might never get the chance again, but here we go. We're going to have some chances on that today. Does anybody here know what the word Hosanna means? Anybody? Well, I'm going to tell you then. Because we sing it, and it's in our Bibles, but sometimes we don't really understand what those words mean. It means save now. Save quickly. It's an urgent cry for salvation to the Lord. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, crying out Hosanna, or the people crying out Hosanna, are saying, save us. But I think what they wanted him to save them from and what he actually came to save them from were two different things. They wanted a political savior. They'd had them before. Uh, if you know much of the history of Hanukkah and the Maccabean Revolt, uh, that celebrates the, uh, the freeing of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, from Grecian rule several hundred years before Jesus. But now, and, and Israel has had a, a huge history up to the first century of oppressors from Babylon to Greece to the Medes and the Persians to, uh, to, to now Rome being in control, maybe the most fierce and harsh of all of the nations that had ruled them before. And as they welcome Jesus on this Palm Sunday with this conquering king's welcome, crying out, save now, it's pretty clear that what they desired was a political Messiah more than a, a Messiah who would save them from their sins. I think, if I might be so bold, it's really easy for churches to fall into the same trap on either side of the aisle. That we want a, a Jesus who rescues our nation, who saves us from whatever politician was elected that we don't like, or whatever political party controls whatever. doesn't matter. It could be president, it could be Congress, I mean, it could be Senate, it could be... I don't have my microphone on. No wonder nobody can hear me. I just scratched my shoulder and realized that. Hopefully you guys could hear me up to this point. I apologize for that. But sometimes we just we, we want Jesus to save us from earthly things, 
from political things. That's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to free them from Rome. He came to die at the hands of Rome and at the hands of this fickle crowd that calling for him to save them and welcoming him as their conquering king would, within just five days, call for his execution. I want us today to understand the power of this one who is the king. And so let's look now, if we might, at his omnipotence. Let me remind us all before I forget, as I'm just now seeing this in my notes, that tonight is gathered prayer uh, that we'll gather here at five o'clock and spend about a half hour praying and share a potluck style meal together afterwards. It's incredibly wonderful. Um, I would highly encourage it, especially we're going we're gonna to be praying mostly for, or in part for uh, things pertaining to Easter and, and the guests that we might have and people who might hear the gospel and for ourselves and how to conduct ourselves uh, in this, this Easter season towards sharing the gospel with people. Uh, we've heard a lot maybe, um, and I'm not taking a particular stance on this, so uh, if you loved it or hated it, I'm not saying either at this point, uh, but we've heard a lot about revival uh, recently. And I would, uh, I would charge us that every single revival in U.S. history, real revival, has started with prayer. Every single one. In fact, we can trace pretty much every single one to uh, prayer that took place on a college campus. Um, but um, again, I'm not making any statements here, but come uh, join us tonight as we pray for just a quick half hour together uh, regarding Easter and, and all of the things that will be going on here at the church uh, and for each other and the things going on in our lives. But let's look now at the omnipotence of Jesus, this king that was welcomed on Palm Sunday. Charles Ryrie defines omnipotence as this. Omnipotence means that God is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his own nature. I love that definition because God is all-powerful, and that's what we're going to talk about today, but that power is specifically directed towards what is consistent with his own nature. There is no limit to what God can do in his might except his own nature, his own character. Let me ask you, since we're talking about God's omnipotence today, can God do anything? The answer is no. And I said that first service and, and every head went like, what? No. Let me share with you Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Speaking of the salvation that we were promised, uh, we're told in Hebrews 6, 18, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We're told in Hebrews 6, as well as in James, that God can't be tempted by sin, that he does not lie. Uh, God is limited not by his power or by his might, but by his character. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In him is all truth. He is the truth, and therefore, he cannot lie. He cannot deny his own nature. And so, God does have all power, but it is not all power to sin. It is all power to, power to do whatever he wants according to his own nature. Before we talk about what it is that God is omnipotent, let's ask the question, where do we learn of his omnipotence? Because the word omnipotent isn't in your Bible, uh, not, not, not at least that exact 
combination of letters as uh, the word trinity isn't in your bible either we use the word omnipotence meaning all powerful however to describe something we see in the bible and so i want to give us two sources for god's omnipotence two ways we can see god's omnipotence and the first is scripture the first is scripture again that term is not in there however there are two terms that are and usually how both of these terms get translated for us is by the word almighty Almighty. Uh, In Hebrew, Almighty is Shaddai. You may have heard the term El Shaddai. That is God Almighty. El being God and Shaddai being Almighty. Uh, That occurs 48 times in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And then there's Pantocrator, which is, uh, in Greek, it's a compound word. Panta being a form of pos, meaning all, and krator, meaning power. All Power or all might, again, gets turned into, as we read it in our Bibles, almighty. That occurs 10 times in the New Testament, and it is only ever used in reference to God. Nobody else is ever described in this way in Scripture. Let me share two verses with you, if I might. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, we're told, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. At the exact opposite end of the scriptures, we find Genesis 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, where God is coming to Abraham to make this promise, this covenant with him of all he will do to make Abram into a nation and to bring about a Messiah. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, we're told, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, Walk before me and be blameless. So we see that God is the all-powerful one in his word. We also see that he is all-powerful in creation. And it is by his word that we're told we can see that. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So they are without excuse. His power and nature, his eternal power and his nature as God have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. One of the problems that we run into as a society and as a church is that we've stopped seeing these things. Uh, This is not something that we're, we're flatly guilty of in every way, but I think in sometimes it creeps in. Uh, We've stopped seeing God's power and instead started to see things that are just part of nature. The laws of nature, we call them, are not just laws that happen to exist in nature. They are, in fact, laws of God. They are laws that he has created. The, the, The fact that there is gravity and anything else is not there by accident. It is there by God's design and it is upheld by God's power. And what secularization is, whether it happens in the world or in the church, and if you want to see the dangerous effects of that, just look at Romans chapter 1, secularization happens when we begin to stop explaining things by means of God and begin to start explaining them by means of nature. And so the laws of nature, as they are so called are really and truly laws of God, and and we have stopped uh, seeing 
God in the world and therefore we deny him. But if we look closely at creation, we should be able to see his eternal power and divine nature. With that being said, knowing that we can see God's power in his word and in his world, let's do both. Three characteristics of God's power I want to talk about today. Three characteristics of God's power. Number one, God's power is infinite. God's power is infinite. There are two ways in which God's power is infinite, and I want to distinguish these two things. First, A on your outline there, is that God's power is infinite in might. God's power is infinite in might. What this means is that there is no one thing that is too big for God to do. There's no thing out there to be done that he does not have the power to accomplish. Uh, We considered a month ago uh, with this video from Louis Giglio, uh, uh, Psalm 33, 6, the word of the Lord, uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. In other words, the sky and everything we see in the heavens and all the stars, some of the stars that we look at and think are stars are actually galaxies, all of them were made as God spoke. What an incredible display of God's power that we find in Genesis 1, God speaks and all of these celestial bodies, stars and galaxies came into existence by the breath, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, a month ago, we saw this video where Louis Giglio kept telling us if the earth were the size of a golf ball, and he made some comparisons for us for size. Well, we're going to do something similar today, but we're not going to consider if the earth were the size of a golf ball. We're going to consider if the sun were the size of a penny. If the sun were the size of a penny. And so we see that that in God's word, that we can see his power in his world. So let's consider some of this. Now, does anybody remember how many worlds can fit inside the sun? Anybody remember what that number was? Andrew Smirkin, you were here first service. Do you remember from first service how many worlds fit inside the sun? Millions. 1.3 million. You can fit 1.3 million earths inside the sun. That's how big the sun is. Now, if the sun were the size of a penny, how far away would the next closest star inside our galaxy be? if the earth were the size of a penny. 350 miles. If the sun, which can contain 1.3 million earths, were the size of a penny, the next closest star in our galaxy would be in Pocatello, Idaho, or Bozeman, Montana. That would be just the next closest star. Now, the Milky Way, our galaxy, not even another galaxy, the Milky Way is a barred spiral galaxy. If you don't know what that means, there's like, in the middle, there's like this straight line of stars, and then it swirls outside of that. It's this barred spiral galaxy. And inside, and our galaxy, if the earth were the side, no, not the earth, if the sun, I keep doing that. If the sun were the size of, the, of a penny, our galaxy would be 7,500,000 miles across if the sun were the size of a penny. Now, that's not even a big galaxy. Now, 7,500,000 miles across, 
uh, by way of reference, that would be to the moon and back 15 times if the, if the sun were the size of a penny. Hercules A, another galaxy. Now, the, the, the Milky Way, our galaxy, would be 7.5 million miles across if the sun were the size of a penny. Hercules A would be 115,500,000 miles across if the sun were the size of a penny. And those are just two of the proposed 200 billion to 200 trillion observable galaxies. Scientists can't agree as to how many observable galaxies they think, that they think there are. But the guess, and the guesses keep growing, 200 billion is an old number, 2 trillion is a much newer number, and we'll see what they say once the, the Keck telescope gets time to do a bunch of the things that it's doing, because, you know, the Hubble, which was amazing, is old technology, that thing's obsolete and retired. Now we've got the Keck telescope. But we're, there, some, some scientists are estimating 2 trillion observable galaxies. And that's just two of them. And God spoke them into existence. He simply said, let there be, and they were. He is infinite in might. His power is infinite, but it is infinite in might. There is no single task that is too big for the Lord. But it is not just infinite in might. B on your outline is that it is infinite in measure. In other words, it's not just a flash in the pan kind of thing that he then has to recover from. His might is that powerful uh, infinitely. He never runs out of power. He never gets tired. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. One of the things this means for us is that our strength, our power, our might is a derived power. It's something that must be given to us. It must be given to us by God in terms of life at all. But, but we must eat, we must sleep, we must recharge. I think John Piper got it right when he said the reason God designed us for sleep is so that when we are completely unconscious and unaware of anything, we get this daily reminder that God is sovereignly in control. That things, we don't cause things to run. Our strength, our might, our power is limited in measure and it's limited in might and it's derived. It's not inherent to us. We need it to be given to us by God. But his power is not a derived power. He does not get it from anywhere else. It does not run out. It's not like a, he's not like a battery that needs recharged. He is the source of all might and of all power. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Some parents just, you know, we get to the end of the day and we're waiting for that moment when our youths faint and our young men fall exhausted. The children go to bed. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Can I just be honest and say I hate that verse? I do. I mean, I don't, but I do. Because think about it with me, if you will. Imagine with me. You, you're at the end of your rope. You're physically exhausted. 
emotionally exhausted, spiritually exhausted. You've come to the end of yourself. You might be saying to yourself, I cannot do this anymore. I'm done. And the energy I had, it's gone. Now, do you want somebody to come along in that moment and say, well, all you have to do is wait. We don't want to wait in that moment. We want God to swoop in and give us what we want or what we demand or what we think we need now. When we're, when we're at the end of ourselves tired, we don't want to have to wait on the Lord. But that's what we're called to do. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. He gives his strength to the weary. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the, the context of Philippians 4 tells us that what Paul is getting at is that he can endure all things. This was never meant by Paul to be a verse that, that gets cherry-picked and says, I can do anything I want because God will help me to do anything I want. No, Paul's saying, like, look, I've learned the secret of contentment. When I have nothing, when I'm in prison, when I'm tortured or beaten or shipwrecked, when all of my life is going badly, I know how to be content because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, our power is a derived power. It comes from God, but he never runs out. 2 Corinthians 2, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. God's power is infinite. Infinite in might and infinite in measure, but God's power is also irresistible. God's power is irresistible. This is to say it cannot be overcome. It cannot be struggled against. There, there can be no fight for which somebody it's victorious over God. I heard somebody say one time, I kid you not, I wish uh, this was a joke. But somebody said one time, God gets one vote. Satan gets one vote. I get the tiebreaker. Church, God gets all the votes. All power is his. And there's not this cosmic battle going on between God and Satan that, that my vote is needed to tip the power scales in God's favor. We're going to look next month at God's sovereignty, or maybe in two months. But honestly, I get that. I get sovereignty. I get miracles. What do I mean? Sovereignty. Sovereignty is when God says, this is the way things are going to be. Thus declares the Lord, this is the way things are going to go. I get it when God does that. When his power overrides all other wills, opinions, thoughts, 
desires, when God in his sovereignty says, this is going to be the way it is, I mean, I get what that means. And I get miracles because God is the, the law maker. He makes all of the, the laws of nature as we call them. And so he can overpower them, override them, suspend them all he wants to. If he wants the sun to move backwards in the sky, it will. If he wants the sea to part, it will. If he wants a wayward prophet to survive in the belly of a fish for three days, it will. And we don't need to explain these by natural means and nor do we need to say that they're mere allegory. All of those things can be overridden by God's power at any moment. I get sovereignty, I get miracles, but I don't get God's providence. What do I mean by God's providence? Sovereignty is when God says, this is how things are going to be. But providence is when God says, I'm going to make billions of people, I'm going to give them wills that they can exercise, even for sin, And even in all of the exercise of their will, all of their sin, all of their rebellion, it will all accomplish my plan and my goals. That's God's providence. That underneath everything, underneath the exercise of our will, is God's providence working all things out according to plan. Now, Let's just imagine for a moment, those of us who have children, uh, an experiment in this. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a plan, and then you're going to tell your kids that they get to do whatever they want. Now, that's a bit extreme because our wills aren't free. They're bound by sin, and they're limited inside the sphere of, of choices that God has given us. I can't decide to teleport to tomorrow. That, that's not in my will. But, um, but you're just going to tell your kids, hey, here's the boundaries of what you can do. Go do whatever you want to, and we'll see if they accomplish your plan. Anybody betting on your plan getting accomplished? It ain't going to happen. And yet that's exactly what we're told. That God has created people. He's created us in his image. He's given us wills that we get to exercise. And underneath all of that is God providentially working things out according to his plan. Job chapter 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Romans 8 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? See, the reality is, the cross, plan A. The cross is God's plan A. And take heart, no plan of His can be thwarted. But God creates us, and He puts that pesky tree in the garden. Not by accident, but willfully with a plan to redeem humanity. And for what purpose? Well, imagine for me, if you would, a garden without a tree. Adam and Eve with no opportunity to sin. And God comes along and he says, Adam, Eve, I love you and I want you to know who I am. And like Moses on Sinai, he tells them, I am the Lord, the Lord. Slow to anger. Well, actually, he starts out with gracious. Gracious. Oh, time out, Adam says. 
Time out, Lord. Gracious? What's gracious? I don't understand this word, gracious. Help me out, Lord. Well, let me just tell you who I am. I'm the Lord, the Lord. Gracious and merciful. Oh, time out. Merciful? What's merciful? Let me keep going. Slow to anger. Time out. Slow to what? What's anger? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, now we're getting into the things that I can start to understand. But who will by no means clear the guilty? The who? See, apart from the the tree, apart from sin, apart from fallenness, and apart from the cross, we have no capacity to understand God as gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and just who will by no means acquit the guilty. And so God puts Adam and Eve in a garden, gives them the command, and allows them to exercise their will, knowing what they're going to do. And they choose, they choose sin. And he knows that he's, this nation is going to come uh, up that, called Israel and that there's going to be one whom he sent who is born of a virgin, his eternal son, God in the flesh, who is born and lives a life in absolute obedience to every single law. I don't think sometimes we can fathom how many laws that is. Do you think Jesus ever wore an article of clothing that was mixed with two fabrics? Nope, he obeyed that one. Or lusted, or coveted, or committed adultery. He obeyed every single one of those laws that we are so prone to break. Why? Because the cross is plan A. So that at the cross, we might see both the justice of God in that Christ had to die for us and the love and mercy of, and grace of God in that Christ had to die for us. And we see this incredible display of God's power where, where only God allowing us to exercise our will, never tempting anyone towards sin as, we're, as we see in James, allows us to, to crucify his son so that by sin he might put an end to sin. So that by death he might put an end to death. Are you starting to see with me how it's impossible to understand the providence of God? How many choices were made in that by free agents? Well, Adam and Eve were the only free agents. From then on, we're bent towards sin, but it doesn't mean we don't make real and genuine choices. And yet underneath all of it, God is providentially working out his plan. This is a power beyond anything we can understand. This is an infinite power, a power infinite in might and a power infinite in measure and and that is irresistible and cannot be overcome and therefore it is, thirdly, incomprehensible. We can't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know about you, but I can imagine God doing a whole lot. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, I can ask and think a lot. And God is able to do far more abundantly than that, according to the power at work within us. I love how in both of these, the power of God that is able to do far more than we could ask or think or imagine 
is directed at our good. He uses this infinite, irresistible, incomprehensible power for our good to bless us far beyond what we can comprehend. I think we need to give up the idea of a God who's trying. You know, I think we have this image of, of God who's trying to work out his plans, but is a little unsure. Well, I put Adam and Eve in the garden and they sinned. Now I need a new plan. Oh, that wasn't the choice I expected from you. I might need a new plan. Well, you know, I know God wants to do these things, but he doesn't have the power. I I can't tell you how many times I've probably heard and said, oh man, you know so-and-so, he or she is uh, beautiful and winsome and smart and talented and gifted. Oh, if only God could get a hold of that person, they could do so much for the kingdom. As if God doesn't have the power to do whatever he wants and he needs that person to tip the scales of power in his favor so that he might do, be able to do what he is unable on his own to do. That's not the biblical picture of God. Certainly he uses us. What a glorious and wonderful truth. And he even gifts us. But he's not, he's not up there pining away, trying to figure out and calculate and play chess to get the exact outcome he wants. He's never caught off guard. The cross is plan A. And he is not powerless. If you hear me say nothing else, hear me say this. He is not powerless in your circumstances. We might not like our circumstances, but he's never gotten your circumstances wrong. And you're not in whatever circumstances you might be in because he was powerless to do something else. This is where we need God's goodness. When you are exhausted, when you've come to the end of yourself, when you feel like you're going to faint and you're weary and you don't want to wait, Remember that he is not powerless in that situation. But his power is always directed towards our good. Towards doing more than we can ask or think or imagine. And whatever those circumstances are, even if they're not the circumstances we would have chosen for ourselves, we can be assured that he's not powerless to leave us there. He's not powerless to rescue us out of that but that his power, even in those things, as directed at our good. He is using those circumstances for his perfect, sovereign, and providential purposes. And we can trust him. We can trust him with, his good, with, with, with our circumstances because he is good. I want to close by reading something to you, reading a very familiar passage but I want you to remind, I just want to remind you really quick and to bring into this passage the, the, the immeasurable, irresistible, incomprehensible power of God. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, may we take solace in your power. May we understand that you are not only all-powerful, but that you are good. And you use your power for our good in all of our circumstances, and that you are providentially working all things out for our good and for your glory. Lord, may we trust you. In the, in the highs of life, when we are full of energy and full of joy, and when we're exhausted and weary and can barely keep going, let us remember your infinite power and that you, you give us power when we're weak and you work all things for our good because you did not spare your only son, but with him will give us all good things. May we trust you in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.